Now we've been studying First Peter, you can turn there in readiness. We're going to continue our series, we're up to chapter 2, we'll finish the second chapter. I know it's taken us only seven months to get here, so we're making track. But of course Peter has outlined true grace and really he's in a section now where he's talking not so much about how we get grace, but how this grace of God gets a hold of us how it changes our values, how it changes our perspectives, how we live for His glory in the midst of the world around us. Before we get there, we'll set the scene, we'll read some Scripture together. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank You. We thank You for all that You are, for all that You've done. We thank you for these moments that we share together. We thank you that you are always at work, even the times, the seasons where we are not aware of what it is that you are doing. You are always at work. You are accomplishing your plans and your purposes. So as we read your scripture, Lord, I pray that your very presence would breathe upon these words, that they would accomplish for your glory all that you desire this morning. Change us, touch us, do whatever you need to do. But Lord, may we burn brightly for the glory of the name of Jesus. That you would be exalted, that you would be adored and worshipped, that all that we are, our living, our breathing, would bring honor to your name, Jesus. We pray in your wonderful name, God. Amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, we're going to read. From verse 21, the Apostle Peter says, For to this you have been called. For to what have we been called? Well, if you remember, this passage started off with an incredible exhortation, an incredible proclamation that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness into light. That we would live for His glory. And yet it then took a turn, and he's been talking about the ways in which we do that, which are not always easy and comfortable. He says, live holy. Live holy and pure lives. You're at war against the passions of the flesh, but stand in the midst of what is going on around you as a witness to his grace and his glory. We spent a couple of weeks talking about this reality of honoring not just honoring the Lord, obviously he's the first one we honor, but honor the authorities in the land. Honor even those who are not deserving of our honor. And let's be honest, that's not always easy. I had someone come to me after we just finished those couple of weeks on honoring and submitting to authorities that are in our lives. And this person said, I don't think I'm misquoting him, they said, Look, appreciate your sermon, but i got to say, that sermon was horrible. That was awful. I hated that sermon. I said, thank you. Tell me what you really think. Be easy. Be kind to your preacher. But they said, you know, it is very difficult. It's not easy, is it? It's not always easy. He's just given an example of slaves in an environment where he said, even if your master is evil and wicked, even if you find yourself in the midst of broken circumstances and situations that are not of your doing at all, still there is a place for honor. Now, that's easy to preach. 
That's a lot harder to live, isn't it? It's a lot harder to live. And so I want to suggest that perhaps Peter pens these next verses here, saying, you have been called to the glory of God, but in the midst of what will at times be difficult situations. And he doesn't give us an A to Z of what we need to do when faced with this circumstance and that situation. He gives us an example. He gives us an example. And it is the most incredible example that we could be given. Let's read. For to this you've been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. If we pause there for a moment, this word for might, some translations say must. And yes, there is an imperative associated with this. This is an example that we must follow. And yet the NLT brings out another aspect to this word, and it says, so that you can. There is an enabling, empowering reality to this example that will enable us to walk and follow in the footsteps of our Jesus. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you and I have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. What an example this is. This is the example of our Jesus. And there is a reality that we will be in awe of his example for eternity. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, it says, In the ages to come, we will declare, we will proclaim, we will rejoice, and we will still be in awe of the excellencies of him who's rescued and redeemed us. For all eternity, we will bask in the reality of this example. But there's three things specifically that Peter mentions, three different aspects to this example that will cause us to be able to, I believe, shine for the glory of God, particularly when the going gets tough. And the going is going to get tough. It will. It'll happen. How do we do it when it is hard? We remember the example. How do we do it when for some reason sin seems more enticing and pleasurable than the Savior and His glorious grace? We remember the example. Are you ready? Three points, three realities. Number one, if you're taking notes. He knows. He knows. He knows. There is a reality to this example. Let's have a look at this. It says in verse 22 and verse 23, it says, He being Jesus was reviled. This word means to be treated abusively, to be angrily insulted, to have all manner of abuse heaped upon someone. This is our Jesus. 
It goes on and says, and he suffered. The word there literally means to be affected by or to undergo extreme feelings and emotions. This is how Jesus. The point is this. There is a big difference between theoretical knowledge and experiential reality. There's a big difference. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Sometimes the sermon illustrations don't always work. Bear with me. I want to show you a couple of pictures. And I forgot to tell you back that there's some pictures coming. Don't put them up yet. Prepare them. But I... uh, I have a feeling that this picture might help, not only in terms of this sermon illustration, but it may well greatly impact your life and your walk with the Lord. So let's have a look at this first picture. Anytime. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. There it is. Thank you, Jesus. Now, this actually, it's a very poor photo. I apologize for that. But this, in fact, is a photograph of a picture that hangs in my house. And I don't know how long I've had this picture for. I remember growing up. I don't know when I first had it. But as long as I can remember, I've had this picture hanging on my wall. As a young man, there was only really two sorts of posters. And there was no inappropriate ones, don't worry. There was surfing pictures. And then there was this. This, in case you're wondering, is a 1954 Panhead classic Harley Davidson motorcycle, the golden age of motorcycle, the invention of the V-twin engine, premium suspension. It ruled the road for many, many years. And I can't tell you how many hours that I'd spent dreaming about one day owning a Harley Davidson motorcycle. This used to sit there prior to Price in my bedroom, no longer sits in our bedroom. My wife removed that particular pleasure. I had a feeling that it worked very well with the decor, but what do I know? What do I know? So it sits in my garage, and every day I walk past. I've got my little shrine in my garage. There's still surfing pictures, and there's still a motorbike. Still the Harley-Davidson. I've never owned a motorcycle. In fact, I'd forgotten about this particular dream and desire until just a couple of weeks ago. I happened to be picking up a bed for one of my little girls from a warehouse in Fishwick, and this has to be the Lord. But it so happened that the warehouse was right next to the Harley-Davidson motorcycle shop. Can someone say amen? I thought very dangerously, perhaps I should just pop into the store and have a look at what was available in the Harley-Davidson motorcycle range. And this is what I found. Ladies and gentlemen, can I have the next picture? Have a look at that. What a good-looking pastor. I mean, motorbike, motorcycle, motorcycle. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the Dyna Series Lowrider S. Top of the range, manufactured, wonderful performance, and I did indeed take it out on the open road. You can see that look there, that look of coolness. I mean, you just feel so much better on top of a motorcycle. It's a beautiful thing. The point is this, you see, for my whole life I've had this idea, this dream of riding a motorcycle and I could tell you a lot about the 1954 classic Panhead Harley-Davidson model. I could tell you all sorts of facts and figures, but the reality is I've never actually even seen one in the flesh, let alone sat on one. They're classic items, you probably could find one. Whereas this one here, not oh, it's gone. That one there, back to Jesus. 
Not only could I tell you facts and figures about my lowrider S, the 110 Screaming Eagle, 1800cc horsepower engine, I could tell you how it feels as you open that throttle on the open road. The roar of the engine, the wind in your hair, I could tell you about the premium performance. I could tell you how much money I would have saved had I bought it before the end of financial year. It was another conversation. Point being this, there is a big difference between theoretical and experiential knowledge. And we talk a lot about the fact that you know, God's love and our encounter of God is not just a theoretical exercise. It's an experiential exercise. But I want you to think of that illustration the other way around. That His knowledge of our suffering. It's not theoretical. It's experiential. Now, just to finish the sermon illustration, if you're wondering, did he buy the bike? Well, I did come home, both with the bed. I was a little later than planned and with the Harley-Davidson catalogue. And my wife took one look. I hadn't said a word. She saw the catalogue. She said, sweetheart, just before you say anything, your chances of getting a new motorbike are somewhere between zero and a lifetime spent sleeping on the couch. So that's as far as the conversation has got. But I can tell you the dream is well and truly alive. Well and truly. It's all about the experiential reality. You see, Peter is saying here, as he talks about Jesus, he's saying, remember, there is one who knows. There is one who knows. He knows. We had a discussion in our home group. A few weeks ago, we were talking about just how you deal in life with difficult circumstances. Someone was sharing in that environment their story of having lost a child. A pain that, you know, as parents, we can only imagine what it would be like to lose suddenly a child. And yet they were talking about in the midst of that difficulty, the struggle, the suffering, how much the Lord had done in them and through them in the years to follow. And one example was this. This person said, you know, prior to having had that experience, there was many of my friends who'd experienced loss and suffering, a loved one who'd passed away suddenly. And they said, to be honest, I would see that situation and I'd walk the other way. Not because I didn't have a compassion, but I just didn't have the words to say. I didn't know what, what, I don't want to make it worse. They're clearly struggling and they're suffering. I don't want to say anything that's going to make the situation and the circumstance any worse than it already is. But this person said, you know, after having journeyed many years through a difficult time in their own life, they said, you know what, the moment I see anyone in suffering, I want to be there. I want to be there. And it's not even about having the right words to say. It's just about someone being there to say, you know what, I know. I know. Amen. You should have the microphone there. It's great. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> he knows. See, think about this for just a moment. You know, there, there is a reality. It's so rich to this truth. We live in a materialistic world. You know, if you're in a difficult time, there's only so much comfort that your possessions are going to bring. How much comfort is your atheism and your agnosticism and your 
relativism and any other ism. When you're in the time of deep turmoil and struggle, any other religious leader, figure throughout history, there's nobody else who can claim as the eternal God who became flesh. I know. I know. I know. What a rich reality there is to that experience and encounter. Jesus knows. He knows. He's a God who knows. Number two, it goes on. It says, he was reviled and he suffered. Second half of verse 23, two words that I love. It says, he continued entrusting. Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Just think about this concept of entrusting. Probably could think of a number of illustrations, but my young kids, oftentimes if they've got something, perhaps we're going for a walk and they've found something of value or they've got something of value, they think I might lose it, they will entrust something to my care. Literally means the word entrust to place something you value in the care and protection of another. See, they know something. They know that there's difficulties or perhaps I as their father, I know that there's things coming up. And I can take care of things better than they. They might not even be aware of what's lying ahead. And I say, entrust what you have to me. You see, there's a declaration of trust there, isn't there? Because you wouldn't entrust anything of value to someone, A, who didn't care, or B, who wasn't able. As you entrust, you're declaring you're big enough, you're strong enough, you care enough, and I'm willing to put this in your control. This is proclaiming, I believe, a reality of Jesus as he walked this earth, fully God, but fully man. And in his humanity, he said, I will choose to trust, not in myself. Even as the God man, I choose to put my trust in him, in the one who holds everything in the palm of his hands. So you think about this for a moment. There's very little in our lives that we actually control. Who likes to think they're in control? A few bold ones. I do. I tell myself that every morning. I am in control. I'm the master of my own destiny. I can do whatever I want. But the reality is there's so little in our lives that we actually have control over. Here's a few examples. You think about driving your car. I'm in control of my car. I have you know, some control in that environment, but there's so many uncertainties. I have no control over other drivers. Wouldn't that be nice? Especially in a city where people are not known to be the world's best drivers. If I could control other drivers, that'd be a very handy superpower. The reality is I don't have any control over the actions and environment that is all around me. Think about your health. Society that's obsessed with health. And yes, there's a certain amount of control. We can eat well, we can exercise, but you can't avoid that diagnosis in the doctor where he says it's terminal. Happens to anyone. We are not ultimately in control of very much in our lives at all. The one thing you can control is who you will choose to trust. Who will you choose to trust? 
Will you entrust your uncertainty into his certainty? And you see, there's another word here as well. It says that Jesus continued entrusting. This wasn't a once-off. This was an ongoing thing. We see many times in Jesus' life, probably most prominently in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he would go and give up his life and endure the, the suffering and the torture and the ridicule of the cross. It says he sweated blood. He cried out. He said, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way? If there is, then let it be so. But not my will, but yours. In his humanity, he said, God, I don't know. It's tough. It's difficult. I, I just, is there any other way? But I still choose to entrust my life and my future and my health and my destiny to you. To continually entrust. Number three, Peter finishes it this way. He says, he suffered we talked about he knows. He submits or he entrusts to him who judges justly. And then verse 24, what a reminder this is. It says, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins. He physically bore my sin. Just think about your sin. Whatever it is, the greatest sin, the greatest mistakes, the greatest struggles, he took that on himself. He bore our sins in his body, created the universe, and yet he took upon himself on the cross our sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness that our wounds may be healed, that though we were straying like sheep, we've now returned to Him. We've been reconciled. We've been restored. See, I believe Peter is saying this when he talks about this example. He's saying, remember, God knows. Look at the way Jesus entrusted Himself, something greater than anything that is going on around you. But finally, he says, Never lose sight of who Jesus really is. You see, he's not just saying, remember Jesus had wonderful philosophies, helpful information. He came to give you good strategies. He came to give you blessing and favor and money. Not that any of those things are necessarily bad, but it says, remember this about Jesus, that he gave you life that you were dead and he raised you up, that your sins were taken upon him so that his blood would wash you clean, that you would be reconciled, restored to him. See, Jesus is not our something. He's not just something. He's not just a good philosopher. He's not just someone who can help us a little bit. He is our Savior. He is the one who has rescued, reconciled, and delivered us. Our problem 
so often, as we already talked about at the end of worship, is that we forget. Sometimes we don't even mean to forget, but we lose sight of the reality of who this Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And I want to conclude by, I mean, I can talk about Jesus being our Savior and our Rescuer and our Redeemer, but I can't talk about the fullness of what that is for you. But I want to talk about some of what that means for me. Just as we conclude, there's someone who wants to come, readiness, play the keys. That would be helpful. I want to talk about who Jesus is to me, and I'm hoping that in this place that somehow the Lord would again ignite a passion in our hearts to remember that He's not just our something. He's everything. He's everything. This is who Jesus is to me. I remember as a young boy, four, five years of age, growing up in a Christian household, committing my life to Him, praying that prayer. And yet, although I made that young commitment, I made every effort as I grew up to walk away from Him, to let go of Him, to leave Him behind. I want to walk my own way. I want to rebel against God. And yet, although I walked away from Him, He never walked away from me. He pursued me. He came after me. He continually was knocking on the door of my heart. I remember in my late teens coming here to this very building, not having gone to the church, any sort of church, for many years. And I knew I had to be in church that Sunday. Didn't know why. And I sat there, knew where this lovely lady is here, next to my nan. There was a preacher that week from overseas. He stopped in the middle of his sermon. He said, young man, I have a word for you. Would you come forward? I want to prophesy over your life. And he did. He gave me a word that literally as I responded would change the course of my journey, of my destiny. And I received in that moment his grace, his mercy. I said, Jesus, I give you all that I am. You have found me. You've never stopped loving me. And here I am. I surrender to you. My sins were washed away, and I was born again. I remember some years later as my wife and I sat in a hospital room. As we heard, in the midst of all the excitement and expectancy of having our first baby, we heard a doctor say this to us. Your little girl has less than a 5% chance to live. She's going to die. I remember just feeling the weight of everything, of darkness and discouragement and disappointment. And yet I remember hearing the words of Jesus saying, Andrew, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And though there was many moments, if I'm honest, that I lacked even the strength to hold on, still he kept holding on to me because he is my hope. And He is my strength. He is my refuge. He is the ever-present help in time of trouble. This is Jesus. 
I remember five years later then, as this journey went on, and praying for my little girl every single day without fail. We prayed for her. And then we heard those words. It was a journey. Heard those words five years later. And the doctor said, not only is your little girl well, but there is no evidence that there was ever anything wrong with her. You see, Jesus is my healer. He is my restorer. I remember in my own battle and journey, having illness at times, I couldn't even stand to get through a service, being in so much pain. And the doctor saying, you have chronic arthritis. It's through your body. You'll be lucky if you don't end up in a wheelchair within an amount of years. You know, I want to say this, that every time I've fallen down, He has been there to pick me up. When I've been faithless, He has been faithful. When I have made a mess of everything, still He is there to love me when I least deserve it. This is my Jesus. There's no plan B. There's nothing else but Him. There's nothing to move on from or to. Jesus is my everything. Jesus is my everything. There's no one else. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? See, you're something. See, you're everything. See, it's really hard not to love, isn't it, when you've been loved and encountered the way that we've been loved. It's hard not to choose to forgive, even when it's difficult, when we have been forgiven of so much. It's hard not to honor when the King of glory himself has come down to wash our feet, to lift us up. It's hard, if not impossible. How could we possibly sin if our eyes are on him beholding his glory? It's only when we lose sight of that. That somehow the rubbish of this world, the sin that entangles, that never satisfies, somehow seems attractive again. See, it's all about Jesus. It's always been about Him. It always is. I want you to close your eyes this morning. I want to conclude in this way. He's here. His presence is here. I want to give you an invitation, you know. If there is anyone in this room today and you do not know Jesus, or for whatever reason, perhaps you did at one point, but you have walked away, it would be my honor to introduce you this morning to the one who is my everything. He is my salvation. He's my hope, my refuge, my strength, my eternal promise of glory, the lover of my soul. I want to invite you this morning. It is the day of salvation. If you would just reach out and say, yes, Jesus, would you be my everything? Surrender my life to you. For the rest of us this morning, I want to leave you with that thought. We have this example. Peter has said, we're living for the glory of God on the earth. It's not always easy, but there is something that will get you through every step of the way. And it's this, if you keep your eyes on Him.
if you allow Jesus to be your everything, not just your something. I want to give you an invitation this morning, just as the Spirit of God moves across this place, that if there is anybody here and you know that Jesus has somehow been obstructed from your view, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, you've just lost sight of Him. You've forgotten. I want to encourage you just to repent, just to say, God, I acknowledge that's me. I acknowledge that I've lost sight of you. But this morning I am turning my gaze to look full into your eyes of love, to see the fullness of your mercy, to see your grace that's unfailing, to remember and recognize afresh and surrender my life to the one who is my everything. So, Lord, we just pray that you'd come this morning as we conclude this time. You do whatever you want to do here for the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen.